what a difference a year makes. When I think about the faithfulness of God over this last year, as we come to what has been an anniversary we really didn't want to celebrate, which was one year ago this week was our very first virtual service and we entered into a very unique time, I have to be reminded of all the ways the Lord has been faithful. But perhaps one of the ways I recognize with great detail, perhaps high definition, vivid imagery in my mind, his faithfulness, is I think about it in contrast to how I felt. Have you ever wanted to just quit? You ever had a situation where you just wanted to give up? We've all had a job we hated, right? I had a job one summer putting insulation under a house. I wanted to quit. It made me study the next semester very hard. We've all had jobs we just wanted to quit. And we deal with that, and we talk with our kids about that, and our young adults about that, and we say, hey, look, you need the money, stay with it, keep working, and one day, hopefully, you'll get the opportunity to do something that you enjoy a little more. But what about things that are more eternal than a summer job or a part-time job or that first job, if you will? Ever want to quit on a relationship? If you've been married or any length of time, you know what marriage struggles are. There's not a marriage free from that. Often people come into a church and they think everybody around us has the perfect marriage and ours is the only one that's struggling. In fact, it's rather freeing and somewhat redemptive to recognize that's not the case at all. Marriages vary in the degrees of difficulty they face. Some people are just naturally more compatible than others. But every marriage I know reaches those crossroads where you wonder, is this going to work? Are we, are we going to make it? And of course, the hope in Christ is that you choose to trust his word over your emotions. And through that, we've seen many marriages reconciled here at Church at the Mill. Not that you would ever want to get rid of your children, but you've had the emotion of wanting to quit parenting. You ever want to quit adulting for just one day? Can I, can I just like be in charge of me? Can I worry about cutting my own food up or changing my own underclothes? Can I not have to touch or clean up or wipe anything that doesn't belong to me? Can I just be me? Sometimes you may face that in your faith family. If you do church long enough, one of the things I tell new members is, is that if you are looking for the perfect church and you think you found it at church at the meal, do not join because you'll mess it up. You are imperfect. Fortunately, though, there is no such thing as a perfect church, a perfect people, or a perfect pastor. If you hang around any of us long enough, we will fail you. And sometimes when you run up against a struggle with another believer, a sister or a brother that perhaps you depended upon in their actions, behavior, their words, uh, failed you, disappointed you. There are some people who use that as an excuse and walk away. Well, I just, I just quit. If that's what church is about, I, I just quit. And in those moments, we tend to forget all the great things God has done. We tend to not recount all the wonderful moments he's worked in our lives. We just focus on that wound and we just want to quit. But what happens when you find yourself attempting to obey the Lord, and people around you are not encouraging you. See, you're encouraged here to obey the Lord. You walk up to me and tell me a step of faithfulness you make, you're going to get a fist bump. I'm excited for you. You tell your e-group leader something's going on in your life and you're taking a stand for Christ, you're going to be encouraged. 
I hope and pray that this is one of those places you come to during the week, whether you come virtually or you're here with us live, where you know this is a place of grace where you're going to be affirmed in your walk with Christ. That's what we did with 258 students this weekend. We brought them into this room and we said, look, I know it's hard, but keep standing for the Lord. And if you're struggling, come back to Him. This is a place that encourages people to honor God. But unfortunately, places like this are few and far between because the world is lost and broken. And it is becoming more and more obvious that the next generation will have more difficulties in standing for the clear truth of the gospel and the truth of God's Word. And it is in those moments where you obey God and it's still hard, you can deal with spiritual discouragement and a desire to say, you know what, I've done all I can do, Lord. I'm done. Jeremiah reached that point in chapter 15. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 15 this morning, and we're going to continue and close this sermon series, Blessed to Broken. We'll leave Jeremiah for a few weeks after today, but this morning as we come to a conclusion of this series in chapter 15, we come to a turning point in Jeremiah's life. Really, this is a point where he wants to quit, and God recommissions him. In Jeremiah chapter 15, it opens very similarly to the preceding chapters. God is issuing forth his judgment upon the people of Judah. I know for some of you that are here with me each and every week, you may grow weary of me reminding you, but there's two reasons I do that. Number one, repetition is a great teacher. And number two, we have a tremendous amount of people worshiping with us for the very first time each and every week. Jeremiah had a prophetic ministry of about 40 years. His life was an incredible testimony to God's faith. During his time, Judah was at a crossroads. There had been no revival. The society was falling apart. They didn't know what to do. They didn't understand their past. And many people wondered, was there any hope for the future? Needless to say, it was compounded by bad spiritual leadership, lying prophets. If you want to know about that, hear last week's sermon. It's available online, podcast, on the website. Lying prophets who were telling the people, things aren't that bad, continue in your sin, don't worry about it, we're going to be fine. Because of who we are, by name alone, you don't need to worry about your righteousness before a holy God. And so Jeremiah has dealt with people who are lethargic in their faith, people who are lost in their faith, and people who are lying about the faith. And he comes on strong. In fact, for the last 14 chapters, he has called down the fire. The glory has rolled from his mouth. He has issued forth time and time again, repent, turn, repent, turn, repent, turn. And finally, in Jeremiah chapter 15, God issues perhaps at this point in the book the most clear determination that no matter what the people do to Jeremiah and no matter what Jeremiah continues to do, God's patience has run out and judgment is coming. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, point out that no intercessor is going to make a difference. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, 
Yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Moses and Samuel, of course, are in history by this point, and they were men who interceded on the people's behalf, who begged God for a second chance for mercy, and God brings up their names, and he said, all the second chances have been used. It's time for me to discipline my people. Interestingly, though, many people read books, as, books like Jeremiah, and they think Jeremiah is a picture of God choosing to discipline and punish his, his people. Remember this, the first choice was not God's. The first choice was God's people choosing to reject God's will. God's first choice is to always bless, always prosper, always favor, always love. But like any father, when the child chooses to push back, chooses to rebel, chooses to disobey, chooses not to turn from wickedness, then God chooses to bring discipline. Look what happens beginning in verse 2. And when they ask, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. And then he says, I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all kingdoms in the earth and what for what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. And by the way, of all the wicked kings of Jerusalem, Manasseh was the worst. Here's just a laundry list. I didn't even put it on the screen. He erected uh, idols to Baal inside the temple. He encouraged Baal worship nationwide. He also appointed sorcerers and consulted divinations and prophetess, prophets and prophetess of wickedness to if you will, give him wisdom to lead. He also worshiped and went toward the stars. Imagine that. He worshiped the stars in heaven instead of the God who places the stars in heaven. And finally, he sacrificed his own son in the sick worship of child sacrifice. God had had enough with Manasseh. And he said, this is what's going to happen, beginning in verse 5. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. Now listen to what God says. You keep going backward. Do you have anybody in your life that way? I have some friends in my life, people that I care about. It's like every time they get an opportunity to turn things around, to get it between the ditches, to rededicate their life to their faith, they go the opposite direction. You keep going backwards. Look what he says. So I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. Bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I have made their widows more number than the sands of the seas. I have brought against mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them. Suddenly she who bore Seven has grown feeble. Being a mother of many children was a blessing in the Jewish culture. He's saying that even the most prosperous families have grown feeble. He, her son went down while it was yet day. She had been shamed and disgraced. And the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies declares the Lord. So chapter 15 verses 1 through 9 is just wave after wave of this hard message. And that's where we have to begin. The heavy burden of hard truth. 
See, one of the misconceptions I think that's often communicated in Christianity is that in an effort to reach people, we're quick to point out the joy and the happiness we find in Jesus, and we should. When I sit right behind that curtain and stand there with my Bible in my hand preparing to come out and preach to you each and every week, and I watch the faces of our choir this morning and our worship team, and I look around the curtain, and through the lights, I see your faces worshiping and smiling. Some of you are weeping because of something God has done or revealed in your life. I want you to know it is a double portion good thing to follow the Lord. I've never been with a saint on their deathbed that regretted one day with Jesus. So when we communicate the gospel, we have to communicate the attraction, the love, the draw of the Lord. In fact, pleasure in Christ is the secret to overcoming sin. Most people think that you overcome sin by running from the pleasures of this world. That's only half of it. If you just try to eliminate your desire to do the things in this world that are sins against God, you'll be successful for a period of time, but it won't last. You have to take out the pleasures of this world and find your ultimate pleasure in the one who knows how to fulfill you and give you hope and peace beyond any experience, any relationship, any accomplishment, and any material thing this world has to offer. And so it is good and right to speak of the goodness of God. We're going to end there in just a moment. But at the same time, the same Jesus that calls us to this life of never-ending love, of eternal hope, of steadfast grace from Jesus himself through forgiveness, also says, you better count the cost, that many, many will come after me. Many, many will attempt to follow me, but will not find themselves worthy of the kingdom because they are not willing to recognize that on this side of heaven, I'm going to ask you to stand for things that the world will reject wholly. I've watched this over the last 18 months. Whether it be the pandemic or the presidential election, for the first time, many of my own members are wrestling with the reality that to truly follow Jesus puts you in the minority. Now, I, I'm not a doomsday guy. I'm not a gloom and doom guy, and I'm not a pessimist. I see God working in tremendous ways. But the gospel, while it is good, is not up for negotiation. God does not allow us to customize Jesus to fit our worldview. He's not interested in political correctness or the fad of the day. The scriptures are clear and clearly to be understood. And Jesus' demands on our life is simple. He wants all of it. He wants all of it. We're not allowed to compartmentalize areas of our life that we choose not to give him. We're not allowed to take the Holy Scriptures and reinterpret them through modern lenses that somehow want to take the edge off the truth. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. He died, literally died for our sins. He shed real blood. Why would God be so gruesome? Because God is holy. The wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's why on Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter, we're going to celebrate a real sacrificial lamb. We're going to celebrate a real cross where real blood was shed for real sin. I know my sin was real. My Savior better be real. 
I know my need for forgiveness is real. His blood better be red and real and cleanse me of unrighteousness. And these are becoming harder and harder for the world to stomach and swallow. That does not bother me, nor does it surprise me. But just like Jeremiah, every woman in this room and every man in this room that attempts to truly stand for the truth is not always going to be applauded. In fact, you will lose relationships, and at times you will find yourself being ostracized and alienated because you are choosing not to negotiate on God's Word. It's not about presenting to the world a picture of perfection. It's not about claiming to the world that we as believers don't struggle with sin, don't fail, don't find ourselves stumbling over our own flesh. No, no, no. But regardless of our own infallibility, regardless of our own insecurities, regardless of our own levels of unsuccess, it does not change the two truths our entire church is built on. The Bible is true and Jesus saves. The Bible is true and Jesus saves. Jeremiah believed in a saving God. Now, he had to look forward to a Messiah. He didn't know the full picture like you and I do, though he prophesied with amazing clarity of a coming Messiah. And Jeremiah believed in the Word of God, but he was exhausted. He was tired. He was tired of being hurt. He was lonely. He felt abandoned. And he had gotten to a point where even Jeremiah, this mighty prophet, questioned God. It was a heavy burden and just couldn't do it anymore. And it bubbles up beginning in the second half of this chapter. Look at verse 10. Jeremiah says, Woe to me, or woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. You won't talk about a pity party. Jeremiah's having one. Sometimes when we get into these times of incredible discouragement, it's not all analytical. It's not all sequential. In fact, it ends up being the combination of a lot of emotions swimming inside our mind, a lot of spiritual feelings in our heart. If I were to dive into this passage as I have done this week and try to understand it so I could explain it to you, I don't really want to list it, but I will list it for sequential reasons, the emotions that come out of Jeremiah. The first emotion that we see is regret. Jeremiah's regretting God that he was even born. He regrets his own life. What have I done? Why am I even here, he says, Jeremiah's not the only person that dealt with this. In the book of Job, chapter 3, Job says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. you got to have a bad day when you curse the day of your birth. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that I said, in the night that said a man is conceived. So Jeremiah said, I don't like the day I was born, and I don't like the night nine months before the day I was born, when the process by which me being born was begun. I wish those days did not exist. I would not be going too far as to say that this is in the universe of regretting your life. When pushed to the extreme, 
Some people, thank God not Jeremiah and not Job, regret being born so much, their despair becomes so overwhelming, in an irrational moment, they take their life. God condemns it, it's self-murder, but this is the level of depression that Jeremiah found himself in. Now, I know that you're thinking, well, this should be a message for lost people. And granted, lost people do struggle with depression and anxiety. Just look at the statistics from the world in relationship to COVID-19 and how people are not doing well and how anxiety and depression is on an upswing because of that. I expect people who don't have a relationship with the Lord to be vulnerable to these things more so. But Jeremiah is not a man who does not know God. Jeremiah is a servant attempting to do God's will, at this point, attempting to have done it faithfully, and yet the persecution and the spiritual war he's come up against takes the wind out of his sails and his desire to live. Soon after regret, do we see retaliation? So God answers Jeremiah in verse 11. God says, the Lord said, have I not set you free from their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy of the time of trouble and the time of distress? God said, Jeremiah, I've taken care of you. And then he goes back to what's going to happen to Judah. Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? The Babylonians are going to march in from the north. Your wealth and your treasures I will give as spoil. He's talking to Judah again. God just keeps on rolling with his judgment. Throughout all your territory, I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Now watch this. Verse 14 is God saying, I have holy anger against Judah who has continued to rebel against me. Jeremiah says, ah, I can get in on that. God, you're not the only one that's angry. I want you to take out my enemies personally. Look at verse 15. Oh, Lord, you know me. This is Jeremiah's way of saying, God, I'm not an outsider. I'm not a rebel. I'm not a rebel rouser. I'm a man that you know. In fact, chapter 1 told us, right, God knew Jeremiah before he formed Jeremiah. God called Jeremiah. God put his words in Jeremiah's mouth. God, Jeremiah says, you know me. And I am so fed up with the way people are treating me, I want you to strike them all down. Here's the problem with that. Biblically speaking, Men and women of God are allowed to share with people of God's judgment. But we don't ever see God giving us permission to be the judge, the jury, and the one who carries out the judgment. In fact, when we think about this in relationship to the doctrine of hell, a subject I'm teaching on in our e-disciple in a few weeks, it causes us not great joy, but great sorrow when people face an eternity without Christ. We can believe passionately in heaven and hell, as the Bible clearly teaches, but I don't have to be excited that anyone would die rejecting the forgiveness that God has so wonderfully offered in Christ. In fact, it should create within me remorse and a desire. Jeremiah had lost that. There was no compassion left in Jeremiah's heart for his audience. The moment a prophet or a preacher is not heartbroken for people, the moment he climbs into a cocoon of his own bitterness and anger by which he's been treated from others and becomes someone who is 
happy that retaliation is needed and judgment is coming is the moment he disqualifies himself from being a spokesman of God. I love the Lord and I believe in his holy grace forever in heaven and his holy wrath forever in hell. But I am not excited or happy to see anybody turn from the Lord. I want to match the Lord's emotions in that. And the scripture clearly teaches us that God finds no joy in someone not turning and not repenting. Jeremiah had lost that for a moment, and he was going to God with a get-even prayer. God, would you take out my enemies? Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 15. Oh, Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me. See, it wasn't about God anymore. It was for me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. So regret, retaliation, and then the text turns to reflection. So in the midst of this very difficult time in Jeremiah's life where he's about to throw in the towel, he takes the Lord back and he speaks to the Lord about his calling and what it cost him. In fact, in the middle of some difficult passages, verse 16 is quite tender. It's quite moving. Look what it says. Your words were found, and I ate them. You know, you don't experience something fully until you take it into your life. Food can look great. I don't care. I want it to taste good. You ever been to some of those restaurants that spend more time making a presentation than they do feeding me? If the plate's small... And the food's even smaller. And they squirt that little pretty stuff around it and lay a leaf on top of it. I'm out. I want the food to be bigger than the plate. I'll eat off a placemat in a heartbeat at a fish camp. It don't bother me. In fact, I want the fish camp to have oil spots on it from the fish. I want to eat it. Jeremiah said, God, when you gave me your word, I didn't look at it. I devoured it. I took it in. Your words became my words. Your heart became my heart. Your calling became my call. Look what happens in verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy. A joy. They became to me a joy. Psalm 119 is a beautiful celebration of the Word of God becoming our Joy, And so in this moment of despair, Jeremiah is reflecting on when God called him. And though this passage is not done, Jeremiah is not out of his funk yet. He's still struggling. It is a beautiful moment of application for us to stop and pause and remember something. When you get against a wall, backed into a corner, or you feel defeated and deflated, stop and mentally go back to when God saved you. Remember how good he's been. Recently, my mother was going through some pictures, and she sent me a picture that caused me to tear up. It's a picture of the day I was baptized, and my grandfather gave me a Bible. And when I see that picture, so many things came out in my mind. I, I saw the little humble church. 
I thought about the two ordinances presence. My hair's wet from being baptized. Just behind me was that little table that said, This do in remembrance of me, where my father served the Lord's Supper quarterly at the Southern Baptist Church there, Shady Grove Baptist Church in Shady Grove, Alabama. You can't or you may not be able to make it out, but the trained in union enrollment, that was Sunday night Bible study for people who really love Jesus. The training union enrollment was 57 that week, 57, and there was $7,570.23 given to the little building fund for the fellowship hall that I helped drive nails on alongside my father and many of the men. When I see that, I think about my grandfather who is dark from the years he spent in the sun and his hands, which were so powerful for a man who wasn't very tall. I see my father, who there is a young man. He's not a young man anymore. But there are two men over my life giving me the Word of God. And just a few feet behind me is a pulpit. I would have never known that day that I'd spend the rest of my life in a pulpit preaching and holding what they handed me that day. No, this isn't the copy they gave me. But it is certainly the copy of God's Word. And when my mother sent that to me, I'd had a difficult few days. And I remember sitting at my desk and tears began to roll down my eyes because I thought about that moment and what God was doing. And it reminded me of a picture on my desk backstage I look at every Sunday before I come out to preach to you. It's a picture of that same man, my grandfather, holding my firstborn son the day I graduated from seminary. My grandmother is with Jesus. My grandfather is still alive. That little boy is a 17-year-old knucklehead now. And that day, I was preparing to pack a moving truck to move to Spartanburg, South Carolina. Those moments in all of our lives matter. I know there's always the fear and the caution. I don't want to ever share illustrations from my own life to somehow put mine above yours I just want you to see that it matters for you to reflect on when God did something in your life so significant, he drove a tent stake down and said, you will serve me. And not every Christian in this room is called to be in full-time ministry, but every Christian is commissioned. Every Christian received the Great Commission to go and to make disciples. So just like Jeremiah and just like your pastor, if you go to work and you're serious, if you go to school and you're serious about being a very normal person with fears, with strengths, with weaknesses, but you're serious about sharing your faith, about not negotiating right and wrong, about honoring the Lord with your private life and your public life, you will not always be applauded and it will cost you something. And no sooner had Jeremiah begun to reflect on his calling that verse 17 shows us he reflects on his cost Look what the Bible says. Jeremiah says, God, I did not sit in the company of the revelers. There was places I didn't go sit, nor did I rejoice when sin was going on. I sat alone. I sat alone. I know of young women in this church who have sat alone on a Friday night because they had to break up with a young man they very much liked because they would not dishonor the Lord with their body. I know of young men in our church who sit alone in locker rooms because they will not speak with filth and will not involve themselves in bullying others. I know members of this church that sit alone in the break room 
Because outside, the crowd that gathers around a picnic table spews filth, sexual innuendos, inappropriate gossip. I've known people in this church who sat alone at family gatherings because they were ostracized. They wouldn't drink with everybody else. They would not involve themselves in conversations that dishonored the Lord. Listen, if you love Jesus, he's worth sitting alone sometimes. Because I want you to know when people are hurting, you know what there's always room to do? Beside a child of God who's sitting alone, come sit down. Let's talk. Jeremiah said, I sat alone, Lord. I didn't run with the crowd. He goes on to say, your hand was upon me. You had filled me with indignation. And then we see remorse. Why is my pain unceasing? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. Listen to this. Jeremiah reflected on God's call, on what it cost him, and that should lead to a revival, but he was still hurting, so he said, God, I've done what you've asked me to do. I've said what you've asked me to say. Why am I still hurting? And while we're on remorse, let's go on to the fifth word, reluctance. Jeremiah was reluctant to trust God anymore. Yeah, I said it. It may sound sacrilegious. Certainly, I would never blaspheme the Lord, but I will read the text, and the text shows Jeremiah struggling to believe God. In fact, that's exactly what verse 18 says. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you, referring to the Lord, be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fell in the ancient Near East? Wasn't no QT around. When you set out on a journey, you had to have water. And so at times, people would set out and they would route their long journeys to get in certain valleys where they would be running water for the stock, the livestock, the flocks, the travelers. And sometimes there would be the appearance in the distance of a brook, a crease in the landscape, a valley, an oasis, only to go up and find jagged rocks, dry with dust. They were called lying brooks, deceitful waters. Jeremiah said, God, I'm beginning to feel like you have failed me. How do you think God's going to respond to that? Let me tell you about a battleship. The USS Missouri is the most famous battleship in the United States Navy. In fact, it was first christened and commissioned back in 1944. That's Margaret Truman, the daughter of then-Senator Harry Truman, who would later become president. She's breaking the bottle of wine over the ship. It then immediately went into battle and served gratefully as a tool of the United States Army in the Pacific War, led under General Douglas MacArthur, and on the deck of the USS Missouri, the Japanese boarded it, boarded it, and in September 2nd, 1945, they, along with General MacArthur, signed the Declaration of Surrender from the Japanese. It then quickly saw battle in the Korean conflict. Here's a picture of it being used in the Korean conflict in 1955. 
And then a few years later, it was decommissioned. It was decommissioned in 1955. Decommissioned, taken out of service. I'll tell you my favorite picture about this battleship. I'll share it with you. This is in 1986. I'll tell you why this is my favorite picture. The San Francisco skyline is behind it. And no, it did not bomb San Francisco, though I wonder sometimes. But no, it did not bomb San Francisco. On this day, tugboats were pulling this decommissioned battleship into a harbor where it would be recommissioned. See, the United States needed it because of the Cold War. The USS Missouri was recommissioned, was modernized, was retooled, set sail again, and served not only in the Cold War, but also served in the Gulf War. And that is a perfect illustra illustration of what God does. God commissions people. Sometimes we decommission ourselves. But God always is willing to recommission us. Look what happens in God's response as we close. God said these words to Jeremiah beginning in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. And you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. You shall, they shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you, this people, a fortified wall of bronze. To this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. So remember those words that Jeremiah used, remorse, regret, reluctance, retaliation. Here's God's words real quick, repentance. Jeremiah, you've gone too far. Even in your questioning me, you've become sinful. You need to stop and you need to turn back to me. Notice that God answers Jeremiah's prayer but doesn't answer one of Jeremiah's prayers. Write that down. God always answers prayer. He might not answer your prayers. God answered Jeremiah's prayer, but not one of his prayers. God said, Jeremiah, you're focusing on yourself. There's where you got yourself in trouble. Turn to me, repent. But when you do, the second word, of course, is restoration. I'll restore my relationship with you. Look what it says beginning in verse 20 or verse 19. If you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. To stand before God in the office of a prophet was to stand on his behalf, to be in his presence. So God says repentance, then God says restoration, and then we see God says renewal. Look what happens in the second, third part of verse 19. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. What had Jeremiah been doing? He'd been telling people to turn. But then he started doing the very same thing they were doing, doubting God. In fact, interestingly, God had to tell Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I will do for you what I told you to tell Judah I would do for them if they would turn to me. So I need to remind you, the mouthpiece of my grace, to preach to yourself the message I gave you to preach to my people. In fact, sometimes one of the greatest ways we can overcome fear and doubt is to stop and to remember the Word of God that does not change over our lives. Paul got to this point after a lot of persecution. In Galatians chapter 1, do you know what Paul says? 
Paul says these words in Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. For I am now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You cannot have it both ways. Either we fear the Lord or we fear man. Let me ask you a question. It's a simple one. Who are you standing before on judgment day? Not man, not the world. Spend your life fearing the Lord and do not fear what man may say or do to you or about you. And no sooner had God did this in his life that we see reinforcement. Look at verse 20. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you. Notice Jeremiah did not get removed from the battle. God didn't say, oh, Jeremiah, you have moaned and groaned and licked your wounds. You know what? You're right. I'm going to wipe everybody off the face of the earth and give no one else a chance to repent under your preaching just because you are feeling sorry for yourself. No, no, no. He says, Jeremiah, I'm not removing you from the battle. Jeremiah, I'm not going to tell you people won't come against you. Jeremiah, I'm not promising you wealth, health, and success in the immediate tenure of your service to me, but I will fight for you. I will go before you. Look what the Bible says. For I am with you, verse 20, I am with you and they shall not prevail over you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. And then finally, we see redemption. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. Jeremiah, you are mine, and I will save you. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed, we still got a lot of Jeremiah left, so we know his answer, don't we? Jeremiah said, I'm here for duty again. I've been recommissioned. I told you my favorite picture was that USS Missouri in the San Francisco Bay. It was until I found this one. This is a picture taken in June of 1998 in Pearl Harbor, where the USS Missouri sits today. You can go see it. This was the day of its final decommission. Think about this for a moment. God commissions people. God recommissions people. Let him decide when it's time for you to be decommissioned. Let him decide when he's going to call you home and your service on earth is done. And until then, don't quit. Recognize that his grace is sufficient. Stand for hard truth. Trust in a good God. And remember, our battle is not against the world. It's against the enemy of God who, because of an empty tomb, is on borrowed time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the opportunity to study this chapter. Lord, I'm thankful for men like Peter and Paul and Jonah and Moses. I'm thankful for people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Timothy, John Mark, and Barnabas. I'm thankful because the scripture indicates that all those servants reached a breaking point. All those servants found themselves lost in hopelessness and you recommissioned them. I'm thankful you are the God who retreads, recommissions. 
reshapes, refurbishes, renews, reinforces, because you are the God who redeems. Lord, I pray this morning, as we come to this time of invitation, that we would think about the person that we've grown weary of sharing with. We would think about the situation we've wanted to throw our hands up and walk away from. We would think about the anger within us that we have harbored, which has stood between us and the next assignment you have for us, and that we would lay that stuff down. And like Jeremiah, we would trust you with our mess and recognize that you and you alone are sufficient to keep us going. I'm going to say amen, and when I do, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. I feel led this morning to say to Christians in the room, for those of you watching online as well, if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, there's been a particular place at work or at school, perhaps a relationship where you've not been standing for the truth firm enough. I'm not speaking of being belligerent or angry or judgmental. I'm talking about a man or a woman in this room or watching me online who says, you know, I, I haven't been standing because standing for what is true costs me something. Friend, you've decommissioned yourself. But God recommissions servants every day. And so perhaps during this invitation, whether you come and kneel at this altar, find someone in our prayer room, Perhaps you deal with the Lord right where you are, but you reach a point where you say, Lord, I, I'm re-engaging. I'm trusting you, and I'm going to believe your word above my emotions. I cannot dismiss my pain, nor am I going to fix myself, but you are greater than any discomfort, any challenge, any wound that I'm facing because you've healed my greatest wound. You've forgiven me of my sin. Lord, this week, I want to be recommissioned to serve you. Passion, fervor, boldness with honesty, with love, humility, firmness, and grace. I hope you'll make that your prayer. Father, you move now as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's